Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a Bloody Mary. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a Mai Tai, and in this week's episode, we're looking at serial killer Kenneth McDuff. Before we get started, we did want to share a warning that this episode will feature lots of talk of sexual violence and violence against women, so that might not be everyone's cup of tea, and you're welcome to skip this week and listen to something else. Kenneth McDuff was born on March 21st, 1946, in the small Texas town of Rosebud. He was the fifth of six children to John Allen and Addie McDuff. The family was hardworking, but were considered strange by other residents of the town. John Allen was a cement finisher, and according to Texas Monthly, Addie was a, quote, domineering woman who ruled over her four daughters and two sons, maintained the family purse, and operated a washeteria across the street from the family home, end quote. The McDuffs were committed to their children, but some thought they were too overprotective. Though Kenneth had a younger sister, he was considered the baby of the family. Addie and his three older sisters doted on him and viewed him as, quote, somehow above the rules that restrained other children, end quote. His peers always remember him as having money and wearing new clothes. Later in life, his mom even bought him a motorcycle. Addie was always quick to defend her Kenneth and his brother, Lonnie. Staff at the local school referred to her as quote-unquote pistol-packing Mama McDuff, and any time the school tried to discipline her children, she was right there defending them and threatening a teacher. There was even a story of Addie berating a school bus driver who had thrown Kenneth off the bus the previous day for fighting. Kenneth was a school bully and not liked by his peers. His IQ was just 92, and Kenneth often drew attention to the fact that his grades were poor, and he quote-unquote didn't give a damn. He eventually dropped out of school in the 8th grade. Kenneth was close to his older brother Lonnie and would often confide in him. In 1964, when he was around 17, Kenneth told Lonnie he had raped a woman, cut her throat, and left her for dead in a ditch. After hearing that, Lonnie reportedly said, quote, go to bed and forget it, end quote. The victim was allegedly a high school classmate whose family was too afraid to come forward. Not long after his confession, Kenneth was arrested and sent to prison for burglary. He was sentenced to over 40 years in prison, but was paroled after 10 months. Kenneth returned as a changed man. He felt he had gotten away with murder and felt untouchable. At 6'3 and over 200 pounds, he was physically intimidating, and he used this to his advantage when using smaller and weaker men as a sidekick. On the night of August 6, 1966, McDuff and his co-worker, 18-year-old Roy Dale Green, headed to Fort Worth, Texas to visit Kenneth's friends. In the past, McDuff had bragged to Green and others about having killed women and his history of sexual violence. After their visit, McDuff told Green that he, quote, needed to find a woman, end quote. They eventually crossed paths with 16-year-old Edna Louise Sullivan, her boyfriend, 17-year-old Robert Brand, and Robert's cousin, 15-year-old Mark Dunham, who were listening to music at a baseball field. McDuff got a revolver from under his car seat and demanded that the boys hand over their wallets. He then forced all three into the truck of their car and locked them in. Green claimed McDuff then said, quote, they got a good look at my face. I'll have to kill them, end quote. 
Macduff took off with the teenagers in the trunk, and Green followed behind in Macduff's Dodge Charger. Macduff stopped in the field, opened the trunk, and asked for Edna to get out of the car. He then asked Green to put her in the trunk of the Dodge, which he obliged. Robert and Mark were on their knees begging for their lives. Macduff shot Robert twice and Mark three times, then lifted Mark by the hair and shot him again. Green described the look on Macduff's face as, quote-unquote, inner peace. Macduff and Green then drove 11 miles with Etna in the car before stopping along a dirt road. Macduff forced her to undress. He raped her multiple times, then made Green rape her before raping her again himself. They then drove to another location and Macduff had Edna get out of the car and sit down on the road. He forced her head to the ground and began choking her with a broken broomstick he kept in his car. He asked Green to grab her legs before crushing and killing Edna. They then threw her body over a fence and headed home, stopping along the way to clean Macduff's car, bury the boy's wallets, and discard their own bloody underwear. The next day, upon hearing reports of the teenagers' bodies being found, Green broke down and told a mutual friend of his and Macduff's crimes. He soon turned himself in. Green became the prosecution's star witness. Macduff denied any knowledge of the crimes and refused to answer questions. His mother came to his defense and hired a lawyer for her son. She denied any knowledge of the killing, suggesting that Green was responsible and complained to the jury that the Falls County Sheriff had a grudge against Kenneth. Addie told reporters that Kenneth had been with a girl from his church at the time the three teenagers were murdered, that her son was willing to risk death in the electric chair to spare the girl's reputation, saying, quote, he's too good for his own good, end quote. Kenneth was sentenced to death. Green was sentenced to 25 years, but ultimately served 13 years in prison for his role in the rape and murders. Macduff received three stays of execution between 1969 and 1970. Then, in 1972, the Supreme Court struck down the death penalty and his sentence was commuted to life in prison. David Christian, an assistant warden at the Ramsey unit where Macduff was incarcerated, said, quote, We considered Macduff to be extremely dangerous and a high escape risk. End quote. Macduff had several parole hearings to no avail. He was very aware of qualities the parole board did look for in eligible inmates and followed suit. In 1981, Macduff asked to be interviewed by parole board member Glenn Heckman. As soon as he was alone with Heckman, Macduff said, quote, If you can get me out of this pen, I guarantee that $10,000 will be left in the glove compartment of your car. I know you're the governor's man. Word is, I get your vote. I'm out of here. My family's got the money. End quote. Heckman went straight to the office of the Brazoria County District Attorney, who filed a charge of bribery against Macduff. The charge resulted in Macduff's third conviction, which meant that the jury had an opportunity to give him life under the state's Habitual Offender Act. However, due to a miscommunication with the jury, this did not occur, and he was given an additional two-year sentence. 
1987, then-Texas Governor Bill Clements, the parole board, and the prison system had decided that to prevent Texas prisons from becoming overcrowded in violation of court-imposed ceilings, 750 inmates per week would be granted parole. McDuff was granted parole and released in 1989. McDuff's release from prison shook the town of Rosebud to its core. Residents were deeply concerned for their safety. John Kilgore, editor of the Rosebud News, said, quote, This is a walking town, but these days you see very few people on the streets. McDuff's return has scared the hell out of this town. End quote. Rumors spread that at the nearby Festival Day celebration, McDuff would kill one person for every day he was imprisoned. Within three days of McDuff's release, the naked body of sex worker Seraphia Parker was found. She had been beaten, strangled, and dumped in a field near Temple. McDuff's parole officer was stationed in Temple, and McDuff was suspected of the crime but never charged. Not even a year after his release, McDuff was charged with making a terroristic threat, an offense good enough to put him back behind bars for the remainder of his life because it was committed while he was on parole. This charge grew out of a racial incident in downtown Rosebud. McDuff yelled racial slurs at a group of black teenagers who were minding their own business, then chased one of them down an alley with a knife and threatened to kill him. At this preliminary parole revocation hearing, McDuff openly shared his hatred for black people with such intensity that his lawyer, Gary Jackson, had to shout at his client to prevent him from doing additional damage to his claim of innocence. The decision to drop the misdemeanor charge was made since most of the witnesses were too frightened to testify. It was up to the parole board to handle McDuff. To make sure the board understood that the people who knew McDuff best considered him a threat, Tom Sehone, Falls County DA, wrote a letter in which he called McDuff, quote, the most extraordinarily violent criminal ever to step foot in Falls County, end quote, and advised the board against ever reinstating McDuff's parole. The board had long considered the revocation and reinstatement process a waste of time and for years had delegated to its staff the power to revoke and reinstate paroles, even though some lawyers believe that the practice is illegal. There were no hearings, no testimony, no advocacy of any kind. The board made no formal decision to reinstate McDuff's parole. Instead, an unknown hearing officer decided that there was no reason to keep Kenneth McDuff locked up. On December 6, 1990, Kenneth McDuff went free again. After his release in 1989, McDuff would move frequently, but usually stayed near his mom or sisters. In 1991, McDuff enrolled in Texas State Technical College in Waco and moved into an on-campus dormitory. Following his arrival, Several sex workers in the area, including 36-year-old Brenda Thompson and 17-year-old Regina Moore, were reported missing. McDuff was never questioned by police. 36-year-old Brenda Thompson was seen kicking and screaming in the cab of McDuff's red pickup truck as it ran through a police checkpoint. Police chased after McDuff, but he escaped after turning off his vehicle lights and driving in the wrong direction on a one-way street. He parked in a wooded area and brutally tortured Brenda before murdering her. Regina was last seen fighting with McDuff at a Waco motel before taking off with him in a truck. Both Brenda and Regina's bodies were found in 1998. 
At this time, McDuff was also dealing drugs and had sold them to an informant. In March 1992, he was charged with possession of firearms and distribution of drugs, and a warrant was put out for his arrest. On March 1st, 1992, just days before being charged, McDuff parked his car at the New Road Inn just south of Waco and vanished. That same night, less than a block away, 22-year-old Melissa Northup was kidnapped from a convenience store where she worked. She was pregnant with her third child. McDuff and his vehicle had been seen near the store that same day. Melissa's body was found weeks later bound and floating in a gravel pit in Dallas County near the spot where the killer had left her car. A few weeks after Melissa's disappearance, police discovered the naked and badly decomposed body of 22-year-old Valencia K. Joshua in a shallow grave in a wooded area behind TSTC. Valencia was a sex worker and a fellow student at TSTC. She was last seen alive on the night of February 24, 1992, on the TSTC campus looking for McDuff's room. A Kenneth McDuff task force had been assembled in Waco. A shock came to the team when they learned that McDuff had a child. The woman he had raped and left for dead in 1964 not only survived, but also had a daughter, Teresa. She was 21 when she learned her father's true identity. Teresa told the marshals that she had visited McDuff in prison and became fascinated with him. He tried to persuade her to smuggle drugs. After his parole, McDuff offered to take her to Las Vegas and be her pimp. She also told the marshals that McDuff's family paid $25,000 to a former member of the parole board to secure his release from prison in 1989, an accusation that has led to an ongoing investigation of several former parole board members. During their search, they also spoke with McDuff's associates. Through this, they were able to connect McDuff to the 1991 disappearance of 28-year-old Colleen Reed, who went missing from an Austin car wash. Witnesses had reported that two men in a tan car with rounded taillights description that matched McDuff's vehicle had grabbed Reed and sped off, going the wrong way on West 5th Street. The man with him that night was friend Alva Hank Worley. Worley told police that the men went into Austin hoping to buy drugs. McDuff spotted Colleen at the car wash, grabbed her, and threw her into the back of his car. McDuff forced her to strip, and both men raped her. They later stopped on a road near McDuff's parents' home, and McDuff threw Colleen into the trunk. When he dropped Worley off for the night, Worley asked what he was going to do with Colleen. McDuff smiled and said, quote, I'm going to use her up, end quote. In May 1992, shortly after Melissa Northrup's funeral, McDuff was featured on America's Most Wanted. Three days later, a viewer from Kansas City, Missouri, called police and notified them that he worked with McDuff, who was going by a new name. McDuff was arrested later that day. By 1994, a Texas jury had convicted McDuff of the Colleen Reed murder and a jury in Houston had convicted him of Melissa Northrup's murder. Both juries sentenced McDuff to death. Alva Hank Worley was sentenced to 40 years for his role in Reed's rape and murder. Just weeks before his execution, McDuff finally revealed the location of Colleen Reed's body. He was executed on November 17, 1998 at the age of 52. After McDuff's family did not claim his body, he was buried in Captain Joe Bird Cemetery of Huntsville Penitentiary. 
law enforcement officials estimated that after being paroled in 1989, McDuff had killed between 9 and 14 women. Tell, what are your thoughts on Kenneth McDuff and his crimes? He is one of the most despicable people that we have looked at. And I also think he's one of the people that was given the most amount of chances to change and just didn't. I know that we're going to talk about this later, but the parole system in Texas at this time was a joke. The fact that you had overcrowding and you needed to release 750 people per week, I understand that. But why wouldn't you take a deep dive into the crimes that he was convicted of before deciding that you were going to release them? I think that his mother definitely protected him. And did not give him the tools to really be able to function within society. He definitely seemed to have no care in the world for the feelings of other people, especially women. And I think that in a lot of these stories, you see that other people get manipulated by these sociopaths into basically being unwilling accomplices in their crimes. You know, we talked about at least two examples where not only did they sit by and not do anything to prevent it, but they actively engaged in the crimes and the victimization of these women. I think that it is insane that they were able to bribe a parole board member. I think that when you think of them, you do think of people that spend a great deal of time kind of reflecting on what the consequences of their actions would be. And they definitely didn't do that in this case. I wonder at any point did other maybe prosecutors or police start to put together a plan to make sure that he was going to be held accountable for something? Because you have him not going to jail for life under the three strikes rule. You have him somehow being paroled. You have him allegedly killing someone in his early years and getting away with it. And you have him then dealing drugs and being a pimp to his own daughter, which is disgusting in an entirely different way. Yeah. Needless to say, I don't like this guy. I... Don't agree with the death penalty, but cases like this make me want to rethink my position on it. Honestly, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with just about everything you said. He is the definition of evil and hatred of women and what that looks like as a person. Again, I am not for the death penalty, but I'm right there with you. Like, if anyone should be executed, it's him. And The whole case just, it makes me so mad that he had several stays of execution and he was given all of these chances. When we know there are truly people in the system that don't get those chances, that are not as violent as him, not even in jail or prison because they actually did something because they're wrongfully accused, whatever, and they don't get everything that someone that people warned you was this violent did it's i feel like everything that's wrong with our justice system and i mean this happened how many years ago and 
like similar stuff is still kind of happening. I hate his family too. (laughs) They can go to hell to say the very least. His mother, oh my God, like it's despicable. I don't understand. I've said this before too. There's no one in my family that I would friggin' bribe the parole system for. (laughs) No one I would support, especially no one that's committing such violent acts against people and sexual violence too. It, it makes me sick. It makes me ill talking about this. It bothers me so much too, just seeing families that uphold such awful behavior from children. And then of course, what does that turn into when they're adults? Is anyone surprised? To answer your question, there were groups of law enforcement that were trying to take McDuff down, warning people like, we need to be on the lookout for women that start turning up dead because it will be him. And I think it was police that he had dealt with in Rosebud and at Fort Worth where he had committed these crimes. They were aware. I don't understand where this disconnect with the parole board came in. It seems like it's just pure laziness and just functioning just trying to get your job done and truly not giving a shit about what happens to the public because of that. I could just go on all day about how all the issues with this, what a horrible person he was, how stupid the parole board is for this. I don't think they ever found if it was concrete that someone from the family bribed the parole board but i don't think anyone listening to this would be surprised and i don't know if they what the process for looking into that was but i don't think anything really came of it and you're right del about the he was so intimidating that it caused other people to be involved with his crimes And that's a whole other discussion about, well, couldn't these people just stand up to him? I mean, if this person you're around is constantly bragging about killing people and being violent, I would be scared to not listen to everything he said. And I'm sure if Roy Dale Green or Worley tried to stand up to him, they would have been killed too or blackmailed somehow by this family. I wholeheartedly believe that. It's kind of bizarre to me too now that I think about it. Why was he allowed to live on a college campus when he had this history of violence? I would think something should have like raised a red flag for somebody there. I also thought it was interesting that his family didn't claim his body. And I wonder if his mom was alive at the time, if his siblings finally were ashamed of him, if it was other people in the family saying like, no, this guy is insane. I haven't seen too much of this, but in one of the articles that I had looked at, there were accusations that McDuff was molesting one of his sisters, that there was a lot of abuse in the family, a lot of allegations of other crimes that McDuff had gotten away with too. We didn't mention because we didn't have enough, I guess, enough resources on it, but it's something to keep in mind. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case, that there was some sexual abuse in this family, because it it seemed like Kenneth could do no wrong. And I find that so disgusting in a family. I could go on and on, like I said, and I have gone on and on. So let's talk about something else. Let's take a closer look at the parole system at the time of McDuff's release and a look at prison overcrowding. 
Like we said, in 1987, Governor Bill Clements, the parole board, and the prison system had decided to prevent Texas prisons from becoming more overcrowded in violation of court-opposed ceilings, and they were paroling 750 inmates a week. That meant that the 15 members of the parole board had to interview and study the files of at least 1,000 inmates every five working days. By the time McDuff was paroled, eight of every 10 parole applications were being approved and the system was falling behind. It seemed as though the goal of the state became not to keep the streets safe, but to keep the tap flowing and the federal courts at bay. Even after 60,000 low-risk inmates had been paroled, the prison system was still overcrowded. The parole board was getting down to the quote-unquote bottom of the barrel, and then the bar was lowered even further with McDuff. He was one of the 20 former death row inmates and 127 murderers to be paroled. Inmates like McDuff, whose name came up every few years, were placed into special review groups. Their files contained basic information but did not fully show the true nature of the person. The pace of executions picked up at this time and Texas executed more killers than any state. Ken Anderson told Crime in Texas, your complete guide to the criminal justice system, that McDuff, more than any criminal, quote, has come to represent everything that was wrong with the Texas criminal justice system. He convinced everyone, citizens, politicians, the news media, just how broken the Texas system was, end quote. Anderson went on to say, quote, meanwhile, Texas politicians continue to pass tough anti-crime laws, but neglected to build the prison space needed to back up the laws. As prison crowding became a severe problem, a federal judge ruled that the crowding was unconstitutional and took control of the Texas prison system. State officials tried to buy time and space by increasing good time credits, releasing more inmates on parole, and paroling tens of thousands of inmates before they even reached prison, end quote. Of those released early, many committed more crimes and re-entered the system. This, in turn, pushed other inmates out early who then committed more crimes. The process was repeated in a sickeningly futile cycle. Although hundreds of other dangerous criminals released early also committed heinous crimes, the McDuff debacle galvanized public opinion like no other case. After McDuff's second arrest for murder in 1992, Texas launched a massive overhaul of its prison system to prevent violent criminals from winning early parole. The tightened parole rules, extensive prison building projects, and improved monitoring of violent parolees are collectively known in Texas as the McDuff Laws. Texas prisons and jails still face overcrowding today, and the pandemic has only made things worse. This has caused some facilities to lease beds from other prisons in different counties. This is not an issue specific to Texas, as prisons and jails across the U.S. are facing overcrowding. The number of people in jail across the country decreased by 25% in 2020. But according to the Marshall Project, Quote, by the summer of 2022, many jails held more people than it had in years or became so overcrowded that detainees were forced to sleep on floors in underground tunnels or in common areas without toilets, end quote. 
Del, what are your thoughts on the Texas parole system and the prison system at the time of Macduff's release? This is an absolute crap show from start to finish. I definitely understand wanting to make sure that you're passing comprehensive laws to address the criminality that's going on. But the fact that you would not take the steps necessary to house them is ridiculous. It's not like these people didn't know that they were going to need the space. It's not like this was a new problem that all of a sudden cropped up when McDuff and these other prisoners were being sentenced. It's definitely something where it looked like people wanted to pass responsibility to different parties and not take any accountability for the horrors that they were releasing on their citizens. I definitely think it's good that they finally took some accountability and started to rework the systems and make sure that the McDuff laws were in place. But there is a untold amount of victims that can directly attribute what happened to them as a result of the policies that Texas had in place during McDuff's time. Prison crowding definitely is an issue, and I definitely understand that there is really severe constitutional issues when it comes to the conditions that people have to face in prison, especially prisons that are overcrowded. I wonder if there is a better system, though, to make sure that we are recognizing that even though people are in jails and prisons, we want to treat them fairly, while at the same time protecting the citizens from these people that have committed awful crimes. There has to be a, a medium, and I don't know if there's any place that has really found that, including Texas. What are your thoughts? I agree with finding this balance, and it is hard, and I think it... It requires a lot of education for the public, too, for people to want to advocate for that. And we're just not there yet as an American society. I just can't believe that this even happened. And it it's obvious that no one wants to address the issues of like the roots of crime and why people commit crimes. You know, you can't explain it for everybody, but there are some things that do relate to higher crime rates. And you would think they would also want to address those and look at that instead of just like having that revolving door of this person comes out, then this person comes in and out and in and out and in always committing crimes again. And I think it brings into the, brings into question the idea of do prisons rehabilitate people too? Because it's one thing if we're going to release these people, but we need to be releasing people who have gone through some type of rehabilitation process, because I think that would also help with recidivism rates for at least some inmates. And it also makes me wonder, so we said that there were 100, McDuff was part of the 127 murderers that were paroled. So I don't know exactly what time this happened and if it had to have been in the range of 1989, but 60,000 other prisoners were freed. So I don't know. To me, those numbers just like don't add up. I know we said 60,000 low risk inmates, 
and then there's like 750 a week but it just makes me think of like what were these other people in there for and then it also kind of connects to i think the war on drugs and a lot of overcrowding in prisons that that has caused that was taking place at this time duff mcduff was released so I feel like that's like another criticism, but that's a story we can get into another day for sure, because there's a lot of issues with the war on drugs. And something that really stood out to me is this decision-making process by the parole board for revoking and reinstating parole. Could these people have given less of a shit, honestly, just to hand it off to this person and that person and have no formal decision? It seems like no thought process was put into it. And I think because of them, between 9 and 14 women are dead because they didn't take the time to look into McDuff some more and realize, hey, like he was questioned for this person three days after he was released, this woman that was murdered, and now he's threatening people for truly no reason than existing. Maybe this guy should be in jail for life. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I know that there's obviously like these people on the parole board could not keep up with a thousand people every five days. But in a case like McDuff, there should have been more of a special report and more time put into it because of his violent nature. And because of all these people within the system saying this guy is violent, he's one of the worst people I've ever seen, do not let him out. It doesn't make any sense to me. I think it's inexcusable. And these people on the parole board should have been kicked off. If you ask me, I'll show my ignorance. I don't know how the parole board works. I don't know if this is something you get elected to, if this is like an actual job you apply and get paid for, if what that all is. But why are you doing this work if you don't care? It doesn't make any sense to me. I definitely agree with you. And one thing I wanted to bring up as you were listening, just the sheer numbers, is that the whole function of paroling someone is traditionally that they have done well behavior-wise in the prison setting. And so now this is the next step. Being paroled is not being a free person by traditional standards. There's supposed to be check-ins. There's supposed to be searches of properties. There's all this that goes into being a parolee. And typically, parolees have parole officers. So I'm also wondering, was that just not a thing that was going on? And if it was, that's probably another failing because I doubt that they had enough parole officers to monitor all of these people, especially the people that weren't even entering into jail, but was given their sentence and then put directly on parole. For all that, why even give them a sentence? Why even pretend that you are conducting some real justice for victims if you're going to send upwards of 60,000 people into a system that has no ability to actually monitor their actions and do anything about correcting it before it gets to the level of McDuff. That's a really good point. And it makes me wonder too, there were 20 death row inmates total, including McDuff, that were paroled at the time. What happened to them? Did they go on to commit other crimes? Because I mean, statistically speaking, somebody had to other than McDuff. 
I agree. I think that if you have committed a crime so heinous that jury of 12 people decided that you ought to be put to death for it, it's definitely strange to me that the consideration for parole would even be there in the first place. And I think that it probably sparks more questions of, should we automatically be adding the possibility of parole to when we sentence people? Or is that something that we reserve for nonviolent felonies? Yeah, I would agree with that. And that brings up a lot of questions. Kenneth McDuff is by no means the only murderer or criminal who was released from prison on parole and went on to commit more crimes. The first person that we're going to look at is Albert Flick. In January 1979, 36-year-old Albert Flick's wife, Sandra, filed for divorce and asked police to escort him from their apartment. Three weeks later, she asked Flick to come back to the apartment to gather his belongings. At the apartment, Albert attacked Sandra. He bent her arm behind her back and pushed her into a chair while saying he loved her and didn't want to hurt her. He proceeded to stab Sandra 14 times. Sandra's 12-year-old daughter from a previous relationship was home at the time and ran to a neighbor's house to get help. Sandra was able to tell the neighbor that Albert stabbed her before succumbing to her injuries. The neighbor saw Albert covered in blood. Police found his three-and-a-half-inch jackknife in the living room. Albert was convicted and sentenced to 30 years in prison, but was released on good behavior after serving 21 years. Flick's violent behavior continued, and in 2010, a woman told police that Albert had put her in a headlock repeatedly hit her with the butt of his knife, then chased her with a screwdriver before she escaped. He was charged with assault and criminal threatening with a deadly weapon. Judge Robert Crowley told the court, quote, from his appearance and the fact that the date of his birth, he will be 72 or 73 when released from the probation revocation, And as with an earlier defendant, at some point, Mr. Flick is going to age out of his capacity to engage in this behavior, end quote. He served four years for this crime. In 2014, the same year he was released, Flick was sent back to prison for violating his probation. He was released again in 2016. Upon his release, he moved to Lewiston, Maine, and met 48-year-old Kimberly Dobby at their local library. Dobby and her 11-year-old twin sons were living at a shelter, but preparing to move to their own apartment in a different town. A friend of Dobby's said Flick found Dobby very attractive and theorized that when he heard she would be moving, he began hatching a plan. On July 15, 2018, Flick followed Dobby and her sons to a local laundromat. She went outside to make a phone call when Flick stabbed her 11 times in front of her sons. Witnesses called 911 and held Flick down until police arrived. Flick was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. The next person we'll look at is Arthur Shawcross. In April 1972, 26-year-old Arthur Shawcross murdered his neighbor, 10-year-old Jack Blake. Jack's body was found five months later. He had been sexually assaulted and suffocated. Shawcross denied any knowledge of the boy's initial disappearance, and police had no leads. 
Not long after, the body of eight-year-old Karen Ann Hill was found under a bridge. She had been raped and murdered. Neighbors had seen Karen and Shawcross near the bridge together, and Shawcross soon became a suspect. He confessed to the murders of Jack and Karen in October 1972, but was only charged with Karen's murder due to lack of evidence. Shawcross was sentenced to 25 years in prison. He was released on parole in 1987 after serving less than 15 years. Public outrage forced him and his girlfriend to leave town. In order to avoid quote-unquote public alarm, Shawcross's criminal record was sealed and authorities moved him to Rochester, New York. A little less than one year later, Shawcross killed again. His next victim was 27-year-old sex worker Dorothy Blackburn. Her body was found in the Genesee River, dumped there following a vicious attack, which included bite marks in the groin area and strangulation. Over the next few months, several more sex workers were found murdered. After the 1989 murders of Anna Steffen and Dorothy Keeler, the cases began to be linked together and the press nicknamed the offender the Genesee River Killer. Police were able to piece together a description of a regular client called Mitch or Mike. Women said this particular John was prone to violence. They also began checking criminal records for offenders who might be living in the immediate area. Shawcross's sealed criminal record meant that he was shielded from the police. In late 1989, a pair of jeans containing an ID for Felicia Stevens was discovered by the Genesee River. Days later, on January 2, 1990, a helicopter spotted what appeared to be a naked female body lying on the ice surface of a river. It was missing sex worker June Cicero. She had also been mutilated post-mortem, as well as sawn practically in half. The helicopter also saw a man standing on the bridge next to a small van. As speculated, returned to the scene of one of his crimes to relive the pleasure of the attack. They tracked Shawcross down via the car registration, and he agreed to assist the police with their inquiries. With their inquiries. He eventually admitted to a majority of the murders and gave detailed excuses about why he had been quote-unquote forced to kill each one. He even admitted to the killing of two undiscovered bodies, those of sex workers Maria Welsh and Darlene Trippy, leading investigators to their bodies. In November 1990, Shawcross was convicted of the 10 murders he committed in Monroe County and was sentenced to 25 years for each count, a total of 250 years imprisonment. He was later sentenced to life in prison by a Wayne County judge for the murder of Elizabeth Gibson. Shawcross died from cardiac arrest while incarcerated in November 2008. Del, any thoughts on these other stories of people being released and killing again? I am definitely not surprised, especially by the first case of Albert Flick. I think you see this in a lot of cases where someone has engaged in domestic violence and comes back and is violent towards that individual that they feel like rejected them and put them out. The fact that we keep seeing murderers get out after not serving their whole sentence is still wild to me. What is the point of giving them such a long sentence if you're not actually going to carry it I think there are certain crimes like murder where it doesn't really matter to me how much you claim to be rehabilitated in prison. I think that 
prison is part rehabilitation for some, but also punishment as well. And if you stalked your ex-wife and murdered her in front of her daughter, I don't think that is a crime where you get the opportunity to be released. And this case of Albert Fleck definitely proves that because not only did he go on to assault someone in which he only served four years, which is ridiculous, he then went on to murder another person in front of their kids. Like, this is a pattern for him. And the fact that the judge mentioned how old he would be, like, that doesn't matter to me. I think that if we did that, then the whole point of solving cold cases would go away. If we say that a person is too old to be held responsible for their crimes, I think that's a ridiculous standard. I don't think that a person can be guaranteed to, as the judge stated, age out of their capacity to murder. Like that's, in my opinion, a ridiculous statement to make. When it comes to Shaw Cross, this is a serial killer who definitely did not have any inclination that what he was doing was wrong. I think the fact that he was trying to claim that he had been quote unquote forced to do things and making up excuses for why he decided to victimize other people is ridiculous. I do wonder why they decided to seal his records. Like I understand that maybe from the public you would want to seal things if you think that would help decrease, you know, like a public outcry, but why wouldn't you make that information available to the local police departments where you are sending him? Like that just seems to be a really bad lack of communication between police departments. And that is something that we've seen frequently when it comes to how certain uh, murderers and serial killers get away with their crimes, that police are not sharing information with each other in a way that protects the public. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I think it's so bizarre that his records would be sealed. And that seems like just like something within the system that doesn't make any sense, but it's gone unnoticed and like nobody changed it. It doesn't make any sense that a criminal's records would be sealed, like you said, Del, to other authorities. It makes sense, you know, for maybe like the media to not have details, for maybe the public to not know every little bit of information. But I mean, if a man killed two children and was in jail for killing one, I would want to know as a neighbor and someone that lived in that community. I mean, I understand criminals are human beings and we, if we're letting them out, they do have to live somewhat of a normal life and still have the ability to work and whatnot. But I don't think we need to be catering to him that much. It doesn't make any sense. And with the case with Flick, One of the, I don't know if they were some type of criminal expert. I don't know if they were exactly within the court at this time when the judge said the statement about, oh, he'll be too old. But this expert that was interviewed said people don't really age out of like committing crimes. And the best way to look at someone's future is to look at their past. 
in relation to crimes they've committed. And like we said, we know some people are habitual offenders. Some crimes are, you know, if people committing one crime are more likely to commit, to go out and commit crimes in the future. And domestic violence is definitely one of them. He seems like he didn't change at all and he shouldn't have been released or he should have, once he was released, he should have been sent back to jail for the other stuff that he's done. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And it's one of those things where you look at the fact that a lot of these people were committing their crimes while they were on parole. And it goes back to my previous point of who the hell is supervising these people? Why are they doing such a bad job? And I wish there was some level of accountability for if your job is to monitor someone and make sure they are behaving and making sure that they're not going to commit other crimes, you should have some type of punishment, even if it's professional punishment, for when they go out and they do some crap like flicked it, like Shaw crossed it, and probably numerous other people across the country do. The fact that it seems to just be a repeated thing where people expect citizens to just go, okay, well, he served his crime, come into my community. No, no one wants a convicted murderer, a child murderer in their neighborhood. And I think that's super reasonable. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about Kenneth McDuff. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. As always, stay safe.